Green Green Left Weekly Weekly Radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Green Left is a leading source of local, national and international news with analysis, discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. Good morning, listeners. You're listening to Green Left Radio. And for our program today, we have quite a packed program today. Um, but first, I'd like to acknowledge um, that you're listening to FreeCR, um, that you're listening... Um, I'd first like to acknowledge that um, this program is being broadcast to you from the wandering land of the Kulin Nation. i like to acknowledge that this always was, always will be Aboriginal land, and that sovereignty was never ceded. Um, and I guess um, main thing I'd like to sort of point, I'll just play a quick announcement um, just before I go into the main news story. You're listening to Green Left Radio. I really am not understanding why people aren't seeing the fact that prisons are an integral part of a public health response to a pandemic. Like you, I'm really concerned about whether the data is being released very honestly about illnesses within prison. I have suspicions it's not, but really we need very strong leadership in this country that actually cares about people inside, our most vulnerable populations inside. That's what we need and that's not what we're getting right now. We need to keep radical voices on air Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio. And for your presenter today, you have myself, Jacob Anjwafa. Um, one of our co-presenters, um, unfortunately, is a bit delayed um, and will be coming into the studio a bit later, unfortunately. Um, but I'll be able to... Um, we'll, we'll be doing um, shortly around um, 7.15am. We're actually going to be doing a bit of a special interview with Rahana Mudin um, from the Party of the Labouring Masses. Um, we've interviewed her um, previously about uh, the Filipino elections, but the, just recently the elections uh, in the Philippines actually just recently took place on May um, 9th. And so we're going, to, we're going to be having a bit of a kind of deep brief on, um, you know, the, the results of the election and I guess what it kind of means more broadly for, um, for politics. Um, so um, the main kind of news story I guess I sort of want to kind of bring up um, and discuss in terms of, in terms of, basic, in terms of um, this kind of, one of the kind of current kind of recurring kind of things that has been, you know, that has kind of characterised the past several weeks of politics, especially in the lead up to the federal election, which is taking place on uh, May 21st, um, is the, this whole issue of the cost of living crisis. Now, I, I, one of the, the biggest kind of um, challenges is that we're increasingly seeing inflation, um, where the price of goods is incre- um, 
increasing, but it's not. Um, but the purchasing power of our dollar is decreasing at the same time. Now, combined with this, um, um, the wages of workers are not actually increasing in line with with inflation, and so essentially, you're we're going into a kind of this. We're living in a kind of situation where the price of fuel. Uh, and other kind of essential goods is steadily kind of increasing. And of course, working class people, uh, especially, low, um, especially those on low incomes, are increasingly kind of feeling the kind of pinch. Now, one, um, one kind of area, um, one, this has kind of been a bit of a kind of, uh, a bit of a kind of debate. Now, in the sort of debate between the ALP and um, and the Liberal Party, um, the a- the ALP um, basically have you know to their credit have kind of made this kind of election promise in the li- that they would um, from July um, increase the minimum wage by five percent. However, Morrison um, the Morrison government actually responded that well responded with almost this sort of over-the-top kind of alarmism, basically kind of arguing, you know, you can't, uh, you can't increase, you can't increase wages by five percent. That will just, um, that will just push inflation up. And well, the kind of irony of this is that what, what kind of Morrison kind of said, you know, what in terms of like going on about this sort of issue of inflation in terms of increasing the wages of workers. You know, most economists actually would argue that this um, this is actually a bit of a ridiculous kind of concern, especially in the context, because very much the the kind of recent sp- the the inflation is actually has little to do with workers being paid more, because because the actual reality is workers um, wage wages have not been increasing, and wages have stagnated um, since the 1980s. And so, yeah, this claim that, you know, having at least, having a 5% minimum wage increase, which is actually, actually pretty minimum, um, uh, in, in reality, especially compared to what workers should be getting prop, um, paid in terms of, uh, in terms of wages. The fact that the, the fact that according to the Morrison government that they're not even, they can't even entertain support for such a kind of minimum kind of demand like the 5% wage increase, really much, it just shows you know, the, the kind of nature of the Liberal Party in terms of them being wedded, completely wedded to big business because there's a bit of kind of hypocrisy, um, when it comes to this kind of debate when it's sort of conducted within the, within the capitalist state and within the political system. You know, the, the, um, Within within uh, Australian capitalism, there's always kind of plenty of subsidies um, given to fossil fuel companies. There's plenty of kind of subsidies given to businesses. And in fact, one of the kind of recurring sort of debates um, and discussion points about this whole issue of inflation and the cost of living crisis is that businesses have generally actually generally get a lot of generous tax breaks. Um, but of course, a lot of these businesses are not necessarily profitable or they're not necessarily paying their workers proper wages either, which is very much the most important kind of part. And I think the, 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 as kind of Jim Stanford, who's an economist and the director of the Centre for Future Work, he basically said that, you know, 
the, this worries that a wage price escalation would kick off if wage increases reached 5% a year were overblown. Such increases had been normal in the first decade in this century with three years of such rises and the, and the economy could cope with the term. And I think he states here this over-the-top alarmism shows how much the goalposts have shifted after nine years of historically weak wage growth. And, of course, it would be most kind of countries, this would be seen as desirable. And I think the OECD data also showed that, you know, the minimum wage set by the Commission at $20.33 an hour for the current financial year has been falling as a proportion of median Australian wages since 1999. Australia's ratio is now near the OECD average and lower than countries such as the UK, which has lifted the ratio from 41 to 48% over that time. Um, the seven-member um, Fair Work um, Commission panel will announce its minimum wage verdict by late May or early June. Typically, they take into account the five minimum wage objectives and consider the headline CPI and underlying inflation rate, which were 5.1% and 3.7% respectively in the March year. So I think, yeah, there's a lot, I think, kind of going on here. And I think, yeah, I think what it really kind of reinforces is very much kind of reinforces this need um, that we need that, you know, we need to actually abolish a lot of the, um, all the kind of anti-union laws uh, that prevents um, workers from organising. Um, we need we very much need because I think when it comes to this kind of issue of wage rises, it's it's. It's not likely that, you know, the capitalists or capitalist politicians are going to just willingly give um, the wage increases that workers badly need. There's actually going to be need for workers to actually, and especially trade unions, to actually mobilise actively uh, in terms of in terms of fighting, uh, in terms of fighting for for wage growth, because very much the the because very much um, the the kind of very much um, we've Going back to the issue, the historical low growth of wages very much means that we, um, that, you know, workers have been losing out compared to capital while billions of dollars, while, mil- while capital, while capitalists, you know, corporations are making millions of dollars in, in profits and none of that is going to the, um, to the workers. And I think, you know, it is, I think, it is quite clear, and I think what this also shows, and while it is welcome that um, the Labor Party has promised a 5.0% wage, a minimum wage increase, that's actually really not going to be sufficiently enough in terms of really addressing the kind of elephant in the room. And I think that, you know, it also, I think, shows that the vote from the from when it comes to this kind of federal election period, the kind of the two major parties don't necessarily have, you know, they don't necessarily have made made um, solutions to address um, address the cost of living crisis because they're not willing to actually tackle the whole issue of profit and um, the, um, the the accumulation of capital. So yeah, I'll just conclude um, this kind of discussion. Um, and yeah, I think. This is going to be a very kind of important kind of issue um, coming into in in past the federal election, and it's all and I think you know this is going to be a kind of recurring sort of topic that I think we're going to have to keep kind of discussing uh, on this program in terms of like how we can you know how we can actually fight for more proper wages and actually address this whole cost of living crisis. Anyway, I'll go play um, a quick announcement. Um, you are listening to Green Left Radio. 
CoHealth is a not-for-profit community health organisation providing health and support services in Melbourne. In late 2021, CoHealth facilitated a workshop for women from diverse cultural backgrounds on effective communication skills for social and professional settings. Positive outcomes for workshop participants were collaborative discussions in safe spaces and onward access to support services. To learn more about our services and programs, visit cohealth.org.au. CoHealth is a 3CR supporter. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio. And I thought before we go to our first interview, um, we'll play a quick um, song. I was going to play... I'll just go play, um, I'll play Never Fade Away, Blue King Brown. You're listening to Green Left Radio. You're the only dream I want, you're the only dream I have, in the morning when I wake up, I feel you in my
All right, you are listening to um, Green Left Radio, and you're just listening to Never Fade Away by Blue King Brown. Um, now, we're very happy to um, have our first interview for the program. Um, we are interviewing uh, Rohana Mnudin from the Party of the Labouring Masses, and we're, we're having her on the program to talk a bit about, to have a bit of a discussion and analysis of the election results in the Philippines, which actually took place on May 7th. So, yeah, good morning, Rohana. Good morning, Jacob, and thank you for having me on the program, and thank you to Green Left as well. Um, so, Rahana, um, I guess to kind of start off, I guess, what can you tell us about the results of the elections in the Philippines, um, which took place on, I guess, May 7? And I guess coming out of those um, those results, what is the implications for politics in the country more generally? And what were some of the issues driving the election in the background? Right. Uh, the elections are actually on uh, May 9, which was uh, on Monday this week. And uh, I, I think it's uh, to, to understand uh, the results and uh, the so-called election of uh, uh, Marcos Jr. and Duterte, uh, the vice president, the uh, daughter of the current of, the, uh, of uh, Duterte, Duterte, the pr- president, um, is to understand uh, how uh, uh, the features, if you like, of, uh, of the Philippine capitalist system, its political system, uh, and that is um, that, uh, it, the rule of dynasties and political clans. Um, so the political system is essentially um, characterized by the rule of uh, very powerful dynasties and political clans who are uh, a landed capitalist class in the Philippines uh, with established electoral bailiwicks uh, in different parts of the country. In the case of Marcos Jr. and his family, his dynasty is in the north uh, of the country. In the case of uh, the Duterte clan and dynasty, it's in the south of the country. Uh, so they've got there, and these are also their electoral bailiwicks. They run these areas on a system of patronage, uh, backed by coercion and violence with their private armies and goons, uh, a corrupt state machinery. Uh, so these are the se- semi-feudal vestiges, if you like, of Philippine capitalism. And this, the dynasties uh, dominate the entire political system from the Senate nationally and the Congress, which includes the Senate nationally, the upper house, uh, to the provinces, to the districts, to the barangays or the barrios at the local level. Um, so majority of the former Senate were members of dynasties and political clans. 71% of the Congress, uh, lower house, were members of dynasties and political clans. Um, uh, over 80% of the governors in the provinces are members of dynasties, uh, and a majority of them uh, aligned with Duterte. And so what we have in uh, with the Marcos Jr.'s election campaign for the presidency and uh, Sara Duterte running as his vice president, we had some of the most powerful dynasties in the country, the Marcoses, the Dutertes, the Arroyos, the Arabs, backed by billionaire capital. Uh, so if you look at the Forbes recent Forbes list of 
Philippine billionaires, the majority of them, backed the Marcos Duterte axis of evil, as we called it, and um, uh, backed this uh, uh, campaign and the presidency. Uh, and they've been trying, the Marcoses have been trying for a long time now to get back to into the presidency, into that position of power. Uh, Marcos Jr. himself was a senator. His mother, Imelda, was in Congress and so on. So this has been going on for a while. And um, however, this interference by dynasties in the political process and in the political system was worsened under the rule of Duterte, was more consolidated under the rule of Duterte. Um, so as far as we're concerned, this is an illegitimate regime that is uh, bidding for power that has supposedly won the elections. Um, and the system of dynasty rule, uh, also institutionalized dynasty rule in the political system, is also uh, based on institutionalized electoral fraud. So electoral fraud is not just a one-off thing. It's institutionalized in the system. Uh, there's a vote-buying machinery that operates at the local level. This is a machinery. It's run by the political dynasties. Uh, apparently, the uh, cost, the market rates and the cost of votes were 10,000 to 15,000 pesos per vote, which is around $250 plus per vote was bought for this. Um, and uh, uh, these are even the international media, uh, some bits of the international media have been cover, uh, carrying this. Um, and in the provinces, 66 of the provinces, the votes were captured by Marcos and Duterte, uh, while the main liberal bourgeois opposition leader, Lenny Robredo, uh, only captured 15 provinces. Um, so again, this is uh, what existed before. Uh, the governors of the provinces were primarily with these uh, Marcos Duterte dynasties. Then the electronic voting system itself, uh, run by the Commission on Elections, uh, the key leadership of the Commission on Elections, the justices and so on, are all Duterte appointees. All of them. All of them are Duterte appointees. Um, so the voting system uh, through Smartmatic Philippines uh, to the company L2 Logistics, uh, which is a corporation that uh, is run by a Duterte crony called Dennis Uy. Um, all these are part of, uh, you know, linked to the Duterte uh, um, dynasty and to support the Duterte presidency. And so we had glitches, so-called glitches, uh, that have in the voting machines, and these have not been explained. Uh, there were 201 power interruptions recorded between 4 a.m. to 11 a.m. on the 9th of May, each of them with an average duration of 17 minutes. We don't know why this happened and what happened during these power inter interruptions. Then, of course, you had the role of social media uh, um, and uh, uh, collusion in Facebook uh, with the fake news denying and revising the history of the dictatorship, saying, that the economy was great, that uh, there was no plunder, that this is all lies, that there were uh, no violation of democratic rights, that in fact this was a golden era of Philippine politics, and backed by violence. All this is backed by violence, 
especially in the in the local at the local level of the private armies uh, and even the state machinery where they raided there are videos of them raiding the polling booths of uh, carrying away ballot boxes uh, of uh, ballot boxes being burnt uh, and, and so on so all this is also at the you know the violence is a key element of all this um so um so um uh, in this sort of political institutionalized fraud of dynasty rule uh, elections can never be free honest and peaceful until these political dynasties are dismantled and we cannot have uh, genuine democracy in the political arena uh, as long as these political dynasties are in power And I guess um, going into um, the election, um, the fact that um, Fernando, also known as Bonbon Marcos Jr., um, got elected as president, and he obviously his legacy is that of being the son of the late Fernando Marcos Sr., who you know he ruled the Philippines as a dictator from the 1972 to 1981 before he was finally de- um, deposed in 1986. And I guess what does this election of Marcos Jr. as a president um, signal in terms of attacks on oppressed groups and the working class in the Philippines? And maybe. I mean, I'm not sure if there's much in this, but is there, if there's any difference in 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 terms of comparison to um, Duterte's previous regime? Uh, well, um, it's Ferdinand Marcos was his uh, uh, father, who was the uh, former dictator, who was ousted through people's power. Uh, he was backed by the United States uh, without the U.S. Uh, backing political and military backing through their bases and their CIA operations on the ground against the uh, underground resistance, Marcos would not have survived as long as he did. And in the end, the U.S. Uh, had to ferry him out of the country um, to go and live in the U.S. where he died. Um, so, um, uh, yes, um, uh, well, uh, in terms of... Um, Uh, the uh, political what what it means uh, in terms of the political scenario that's unfolding um uh, ascent, what we would have um is the continuation of a duterte star rule uh, which is an authoritarian rule uh, possibly uh, uh, more um, uh, more authoritarian Uh, but not necessarily more authoritarian, uh, but uh, without uh, a, a blanket dictatorship like we had during the Marcos period, which we survived and resisted against and won against. Um, so um, Congress is with them. Uh, uh, <laughs> most of the people elected in Congress uh, are with uh, Marcos and Duterte. Um, in the Senate, only one senator is with the opposition. The opposition just got completely wiped out uh, in this, as a part of this electoral fraud. Um, so, you know, Marcos uh, Sr., uh, the dictator, had to close down Congress. Duterte didn't have to close down Congress because it's with him. Um, and, uh, and I think that will continue. But there is a resistance I think this is really important to understand. Um, the resistance to this, to electoral fraud, and to the possibility of this regime being established 
started on day one itself. On the nine, on the uh, evening of uh, uh, the polling booths being closed, uh, and it was um, on the evening, students basically called for a complete closure of campus, uh, a boycott of classes um, un uh, under the Marcos regime. Um, so uh, major student councils and student regions, that is, student representatives on university boards, have now come out and declared no classes, no opening to campus under this regime. They have taken to the streets, they're camping out on the streets, uh, and there's this constant mobilization going on. So the resistance has already begun on the first night itself. And um, labor is now joining, the la workers' movement is joining, and today we're going to have some uh, major protests today. It's being called Black Friday. Uh, the opposition is uh, mobilizing uh, with Lenny Robredo, they're called the Kakampinks. Labor is mobilizing, and uh, PLM and our mass organizations are part of all that. So there's also resistance. So what I think we're going to see is... a uh, um, uh, a period of extreme political instability um, uh, that's going to open up. Um, and this alliance of convenience, which is the Marcos Duterte dynastic duo, uh, will ve very unlikely be able to survive uh, this, possibly even within a year, uh, before this dynastic alliance is undone. Uh, and uh, there are already... Uh, Frictions appearing uh, already, um, uh, divisions starting to appear in terms of how cabinet positions are being allocated. Um, so I think that's a kind of scenario. Um, we think that the government, um, large sections of the population are refusing and will refuse to grant legitimacy and credibility to the rule of this families of thieves. We think the government bureaucracy will split as, as well as the military. Um, and um, uh, in terms of the Masa, I mean, Marcos, you know, there's desperate, the people are desperate after decades of neoliberal rule. Their lives have been destroyed, the pandemic on top of that. Their lives have been destroyed. The socioeconomic fabric of the country has been destroyed and the people are desperate, um, which is part, part of the reason for some, some of the levels of support from Marcos because of what they have experienced under liberal, neoliberal rule. Um, so, uh, but all the promises that Marcos has made, he just promised everything. So there was a populism to his platform as well. He's just not going to be able to deliver it. And uh, there will be uh, a tremendous anger as a result of this as well. So uh, this is the kind of scenario uh, that we uh, are expecting. Uh, we think it's unlikely that this, if it is established, if they, um, uh, they have to, um, uh, Congress reconvenes in uh, July, uh, and that's when formally the president uh, is, uh, um, you know, takes on, the person takes on the presidency. If the, it, uh, if, uh, the resistance doesn't upset that, scenario, and if they, uh, the regime is established in July, um, then uh, I think this is, it's going to be extremely uh, unstable politically, and it might not last even a year. Um, so uh, this is uh, the kind of situation that we uh, expect.
All right. So for my next question, um, I think you've sort of um, covered different um, aspects of the question I am about to ask, but I was going to sort of go into some more specific sort of areas of it um, because, yeah, obviously um, the representative um, Idsil Landman, Lagman of the first district of Albi, said that, you know, the Filipino people, and I imagine, you know, my understanding, you know, from an outsider is that he represents, I guess, a, a more liberal kind of capitalist kind of position, um, politician. Um, and, you know, he basically said the, the Filipino people have committed a mistake in electing Fernando Bonbon Marcos Jr. for president, but he basically sort of tried to say that the public should respect the so-called democratic process, which you've been clearly raising a lot of criticisms of, that this is not, have, is not actually a kind of fair uh, democratic process. And I guess I want to hear some of the kind of comments on this, I guess, from from the perspective of the socialists, um, but also given the criticisms that it was not a fair democratic process. And I guess I want to sort of also see your comments on sort of unpacking this sort of comment. What does this kind of reflect about some of the division, because you alluded to this, some of the divisions in the kind of political class and some of the political parties on on this election and, and the general stability of this government in general? Mm. I actually hadn't come across that comment by Edsel Lagman, uh, whom you are referring to. Um, Edsel Lagman is, uh, I, I have um, uh, a lot of respect for Edsel Lagman. Uh, we've had uh, a coalition with him uh, and a close working relationship with him over the decades. Um, he can't, he's um, the family, the Lagman family is a progressive family. Um, their, uh, one of their sons was killed under the Marcos dictatorship. Uh, he was a, a leader of the underground movement. Uh, uh, Edsel's brother was killed. Uh, Edsel's other brother was a leader. Uh, Popoy Lagman was a leader of the underground movement uh, that I knew well, that I've met as well. And with uh, um, and he was assassinated, uh, not under Marcos, but subsequently uh, under uh, um, elite democracy, um, post-Marcos. So, um, you know, Edsel comes from a progressive family. He's been a long-term ally. We work um, there. Uh, his sister runs one of the main human rights organizations and so on. I don't think his sister would necessarily agree <laughs> with uh, Edsel's declaration. Um, so, uh, you know, we, we don't agree. We uh, um, differ with him on this, uh, and we have deferred with him on these issues in the past. He does, uh, on various issues, I mean, um, but uh, he does represent the, the liberal uh, bourgeois opposition uh, in the country. Uh, he's an important voice in that oppos- opposition, uh, and um, uh, I hope he does change his position, uh, especially with the resistance developing. And I hope he uh, uh, backs the resistance uh, and the protests on the streets. Um, but more broadly speaking, I think what it represents is that the liberal uh, opposition, also bourgeois opposition, also plays uh, the same game of dynasty politics and uh, trap or what we call traditional politics or trap or politics. Um, so they play uh, the same game and they don't really challenge uh, the political system of dynasty rule. Uh, and I think uh, more broadly speaking, this is what it represents. Hmm. Um, and I guess 
the one of the most um, one of the most important aspects, and this is something we were discussing with you uh, in the lead up to this election, is the party the labouring masses ran a full left wing um, ticket, um, including um, including running for the positions of president and vice president, which is something um, that, from my understanding, actually hasn't been necessarily been done by the left before. Um, and I guess, what can you tell us about? your results um, in the overall election. And I guess, what lessons did this overall campaign offer for the, the broader left in the Philippines? Uh, well, our election, you, you know, we, we suffered as a result of the targeted uh, electoral fraud against the opposition. As I said in the Senate, there's only one opposition senator uh, um, who got in, who was a part of the Lenny Robredo camp. Um, so uh, the opposition vote uh, was, uh, you know, seriously affected and targeted as a part of the electoral fraud. But um, we, uh, nevertheless, we still had a big national political impact. Uh, our platform uh, that we ran on, which was an anti-capitalist, anti-neoliberal platform, got mainstream national projection. Uh, we got a very positive hearing and response from the Masa, especially the youth, especially the youth. Um, uh, there was a sort of spontaneous support, pouring of support from the youth. Um, and, um, of, and of course, this, because of electoral fraud, this hasn't been translated into votes. Um, but even in such a rigged system, in such a, such a massively rigged uh, fraudulent system, we managed to garner around 4 million votes. Uh, that is around 10% of the national votes cast, uh, if you don't discount for the votes bought. So if you just look at the overall votes cast, that's around 10%. Uh, now, uh, I don't know what the ratio of votes are that are bought straight out. It could be one to every five, so it could be 20%. Uh, which means uh, that would be uh, much higher than the 10%. Um, and we have established national candidates now, uh, uh, recognized, nationally recognized candidates who are putting forward our calls right now to resist the regime um, with authority uh, in the eyes of the Masa, especially young people, our candidates are being invited to attend all these youth gatherings, the sit-ins on the street, and are being cheered, uh, as we call for building the resistance. So, you know, we are uh, well positioned in terms of the uh, uh, support that we have within this spontaneous resistance of youth. Of course, we are well established in the labor movement, uh, and we are uh, well, so in terms of the leadership of this resistance, we are in a, um, a, a solid position now. Um, so, yes, so th that's uh, uh, how we assess it. Well, that actually leads into what you kind of said, and I'm definitely um, keen to kind of hear more about this aspect, um, because I guess following this kind of election result, and I guess we can sort of make this, in a sense, the kind of final kind of question in terms of our um, discussion here. I mean, how is, I guess, you know, you know, it's clear that following this election that the PLM is sort of well positioned to kind of mobilise the masses against this incoming presidency. And I guess, but also more broadly, how, how does this actually connect with, you know, the other, the more, the broader left within the kind of country? And I guess, what is the kind of resistance that is going to be kind of organised in response to this presidency and 
how how this is going to go forward? Well, uh, PLM is uh, calling for uh, a broad uh, united front uh, of the left and progressives against the regime, against electoral fraud and against the regime. And various discussions are underway. And as a part of this broad united... Hello, can you hear me? Yep, yep, I can all hear you. Yep, it's all good. As a part of this broad uh, united front, um, uh, the protests tomorrow... uh, uh, part of this broad united front. Um, the, Lenny Robredo is uh, mobilizing her forces uh, 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 separately, uh, but the left is uh, um, uh, mobilizing uh, together, um, and the labor uh, is mobilizing tomorrow. So we're calling for a broad united front uh, with Lenny Robredo and uh, the anti-Marcos opposition uh, with the left, uh, and uh, negotiations are underway. Some of the actions, sorry, taking place today, not tomorrow. The actions taking place today are uh, as a result of this uh, broad uh, unity that we are calling for. Um, yes, so uh, today is Black Friday. In a few hours, uh, people will be mobilizing from 9 o'clock uh, in the morning, Manila time, to uh, is one lot of protests. Uh, 9 to 10, one lot of protests are starting to gather uh, Manila time. And then 3 p.m., the Robredo forces will start to gather. Part of the protests are taking place outside uh, the Commission on Elections. Uh, and the other uh, uh, Robredo protests are taking place in one of the main universities, which have called for um, uh, uh, no classes under the regime. Um, so today is a key day. Uh, people are on the streets, students are on the streets, labor is joining the students. Uh, yes, so uh, uh, there will be uh, further, up. we can have further updates after today. All right. Well, thank you very much, um, Rahana, um, for being on our program this week. Um, I think this has been a very informative, this has been a very um, good interview, you know, giving a bit of an overview of the, the election result in the Philippines, but also the kind of general kind of response um, from the board left. And of course, yeah, Green Left Radio would like to kind of extend all the solidarity we can uh, to this sort of, um, this struggle against this, in, against the incoming presidency. And I think, yeah, we would definitely want to hear more discussions as things um developed. Um, so thank you very much, Rahana. Thank you, Jacob, and thank you very much to Green Left. I think it's really important to get this information out and to build solidarity with the resistance in Australia. Uh, thank you. All right. Thank you very much, Rahana. All right. You're listening to Green Left um, Radio, and um, we're just inter- um, having an interview with Rahana Munuddin, um from the Party of the Labouring Masses, talking about uh, the fi- um, the election results that took place in the um, the Philippines on May the 9th, um, which was on on, on this um, last Monday. Anyway, I'll go play. We'll be playing um, a quick announcement. Um, you are listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR eight five five AM. We've got a common enemy, the same government that locks up these refugees just behind us here at the Park Hotel. It's the same government that's going for our rights, trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have. 
And so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity. It's about building workers' united self-defense mechanism, understanding that we're all part of the same battle. You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital, and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au. I think 3CR is the voice of the people speaking back to the establishment and telling them what they think and sometimes it's something they don't want to hear. Solidarity Breakfast, your Saturday morning serving of union and working news, current events, opinion and talkback. Every Saturday, 7.30 till 9am, here on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. Alright, you're listening to Green Left Radio, and for the next part of the program, I thought I'll do um, a bit of a kind of news report. Um, this is something about this is quite, an, I guess, a quite exciting sort of news story. And this is coming from the pages, I guess, of Green Left. And it's being reported as Sydney Uni stri- staff strike for secure work, better student outcomes. Now, teaching staff at the University of Sydney um, have been striking for two days um, from May 11th to May the 12th. And ba- the basis of, of the strike has been on for secure work and better conditions in their enterprising bargaining grant. Now, this the fact that these workers, and I think all the solidarity to these workers for, um, for the strike, um, you know, this kind of it reflects the kind of like the sign that um, that university management um, had, is refusing to concede on important work rights. The National Territory Education Union has actually been attempting to negotiate a new agreement since last August. Now, one of the exciting kind of aspects of this is this kind of this brought together actually staff and students in quite a, a real kind of way, and in fact, a, um, a, um, a strong picket line was established at all the picket campus entrances on May 11th, which turned away people and cars seeking to enter the university in the morning. However, most staff and star students were supporting the strike action and stayed away. For weeks, the NTU had been, has been explaining, and as this is kind of reported in Green Left, has been explaining that the union has made progress on some issues, but that the management has, is opposing and even refusing to engage on some of the most important kind of claims. You know, some of these claims that um, the NTU and at Sydney University are trying to deal with is they're wanting to kind of have an end to force redundancies. They want enforceable controls on workload for all staff. We want a per- per- preservation of a right to um, a 40% research component in academic workloads, an end to exploitative long-term casualisation, recognition and improvement of work from home rights for professional staff, an end to disruptive um, change management and performance review practices, enforceable targets for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island employment and fair prize members. And now, 
I think we actually reported this, but you know, th- this this was following a large NTU members meeting on April 28th, which rode to start an industrial campaign, which was the begin, um, which was to begin with this two-day strike, which took place on May 11th to the May 12th. And I think there is there is kind of like um, they get the union um, the union said that you know if the progress is not made in negotiations, it would organise another strike and pickets on May 24th, just before National Story Day and Reconciliation Week, focused on First Nations employment rights. And you know at the picket line um, that was kind of observed and as it was kind of reported in Green Left, you know the NTU banner reads job security, decent pay, reasonable workloads. And one staff member told um, the picket line, as an early um, career academic, my future was effectively put on hold. This is just the tip of the iceberg. There is now a mass casualisation of the university workforce. As part of a process of casualisation of the whole workforce, the university operates because we all work for free. Other staff members said we are fighting to decasualise the university as management is cutting out the pathways to permanency. She sent solidarity to all the other workers striking for fair paying conditions, including aged care workers, nurses, teachers, transport staff and council staff. Placards um, held by strikers and supporters declared casuals deserve secure jobs, no paid leave, no respect, no future. So I think the, you know, this, I think the fact that this, um, strike has kind of taken place, I think it is, you know, I think this does reflect a quite an exciting, I think it reflects quite an exciting development. I think it shows that, you know, when workers, um, get organized, um, we can have kind of meaningful action because I think at the end of the day, when it comes strike action by workers, you know, for all the, the terrible kind of anti-union laws that exist, it is going to be the main kind of thing that is going to, you know, getting workers organised, taking collective action, this is all something that I think, you know, as, you know, for a program like Green Left Radio that we are all wholeheartedly kind of support. Anyway, um, I might just go, I'll go to another news story, but um, first thing, I'll just go play a quick announcement. Um, you are listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855am. Do you know what to do if you can't make it to a voting place on election day? You may be eligible to vote at an early voting centre or apply for a postal vote. The federal election is on Saturday the 21st of May. COVID-19 safety measures will be in place. All Australians 18 and over must vote. To find out more and check if you're eligible, ring 132326 or go to aec.gov.au. It's our vote and our future. The Milky Way looks good in the night skies. The stars open a short for my dark eyes. Hey, I'm Lady Lash. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, the voice of the set. 3CR is so awesome, giving the platform for people's voices to be heard and people's gifts to be heard. And always remember that you are amazing. I'm dreaming of the seven moons. All right, you are listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR eight five five AM. Now, the kind of um, the next kind of news story I wanted to kind of draw from um, is this is a bit of a this is a bit of a kind of a, a bit of a tragic um, kind of news story, um, but probably listeners have possibly heard about um, the the death or the murder of. One of the uh, Al Jazeera journalists um, within uh, within Westpac, um, known um, whose name was um, Shireen um, Shireen Abu 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 Aklu, um, for um, 
she basically Al Jazeera has um, accused Israel of deliberately killing one of its reporters during a military raid in the occupied West Bank town of Jenin. Now, reporting from 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 the Guardian. Um, Shireen Abdul Akir, 51, was a Palestinian American and one of the Arab world's best known journalists. She had covered the conflict for decades and was shot in the head on Wednesday morning and taken to the hospital in a critical condition. She was, um, present at, in the West Bank, um, because she had been covering the military raid in the Jinan refugee camp, which is a stronghold of the Palestinian Fatah movement and a historical flashpoint in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. You know, Abu Akhlia was wearing a helmet and body armor, clearly marked press. The Qatar-based, um, network, television network said her colleagues at the scene said the Rection reporter was shot by Israeli forces. And in response, um, Al Jazeera has called on the international community to hold Israeli forces accountable for their intentional targeting and killing of Abu Abu Akilu. In a blatant murder violating international laws and norms, the Israeli occupation forces assassinated in cold blood Al, Al Jazeera correspondent in Palestine. So, yeah, this is a, a very kind of... I think a very tragic kind of story, and I think you know, may she rest in in power. And I think we, I think this very much, I think this is another kind of strong example. I think of the the inhumanity of um, the, the the Israel occupa- occupation of Palestine. And I think this raises you know more and more the case that there needs to be you know that we need to fight. Uh, and to mobilise and free a Palestine from the occupation. And I think, you know, as probably for all our listeners, yeah, we're going to continue, obviously, to support the Palestinian struggle. And I think just to make a bit of a note, there is going to be uh, a rally, um, not specifically in response to this incident, but there will be uh, a rally organised by Free Palestine Melbourne on Sunday. And um, it's going to be taking place at 12 p.m. Um, um, this Sunday at the State Library. And I think, yeah, this will be, I think, an important kind of protest. It will be the Nakba Day 2022 um, vigil. And I think, yeah, this will, I think this will be an important kind of protest um, to attend to. And I think, yeah, I think we should try and get, I think we should go and get a big mobilisation for this protest. And I think this is a very, you know, it is important because the Nakba or Kastrashi in Arabic is a common definition given to the hostilities and tribulations that began after the approval of the UN petition plan for Palestine in 1947. So, yeah, I think, yeah, definitely get to that. I think definitely get to that protest. And, um, yeah. All right. Well, I was just going to um, play, I think I was going to play a song. Um, and I was thinking that we would play Poetry by Text by Alex Skye. You're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM.
Alright, you are listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR855M and that were, you are listening to Poetry by Text by Alex Skye and now it is 8am um, and, um, and then for this part of the program it is time to go through the Green Left Activist Calendar um, basically covering some of the events that are going to be coming up um, some of the protests and movement events that are going to be happening in Melbourne so the first kind of event I want to highlight is, which I spoke about before, there's going to be a vigil, um, NACBA Day um, 2022 at uh, 12 noon at the State Library at 328 Swanson Street in the city. And then on Sunday, um, May 15th um, on on 2pm, there'll be the Tamil Genocide Day Rally, which will be happening at the State Library at 328 Swanson Street in the city. And then on Tuesday, May the 17th, there's going to be an online forum, Tom Wyman, on the German ideology. And I think you can get info on that event through 
um, through look, um, through you can get info on the event by um, from going to the new international bookshop Facebook page or looking on their on their website. Um, and then on Saturday, May the 28th, there's going to be a rally, Stop Turkey's War on the Kurds, and that's going to be happening at 2pm at the old GPO um, in, um, at the Burke Street Mall. Um, and then on on Monday, May the 30th, there's going to be a public forum um, after the election, which way forward for the refugee movement. And this is a public forum that's going to be um, that's been organised by um, that's been organised by Refugee Action Collective, and that's going to be happening at 6:30 p.m. at the Kathleen um, Syme Library and Community Centre at 251 Faraday Street in Carlton. Um, now. On Tuesday, May the 31st, um, um, there's going to be a public forum, um, Return to Country, Reparation and Resilience, at 6.30pm at the Wheeler Centre, um, which is going to be at 176 Little Longsdale Street in the city. Um, and then on Sunday, June the 5th, there's going to be a film screening, One Night the Moon, at 1pm at the Esplanade Hotel, 11 the Esplanade in St Kilda. And from, and until Sunday, um, June the 19th, um, there's actually an exposition in Geelong, which is titled The Personal is Political. Um, so yeah, you can get a bit of, um, you can get a bit of a copy of that, um, by, yeah, you can go look at, at the details of that at the Geelong Gathering. So yeah, those are some of the upcoming kind of political events, um, that are coming up this week. Um, now I was thinking actually possibly for our second interview of the program we might actually just go play another song for the program our third song for the program um we'll just play i'll we'll play, play breathe in um breathe out by Thelma plum you're listening to green left radio White walls, 
When disaster hits a group of islands scattered around the ocean like Tonga, it is evident how the responses and actions can be difficult. For these multitude of uh, beings have no idea what to do, plus no equipment or tools to work with, and the impact will show on everything, physically, mentally, financially, and people due to being uninformed and unequipped. So maybe this is um, this is a question for the Tongan government. How can you manage situation like this better in the future? Subscribe to 3CR, informed, articulate and alternative. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03 9419 8377.
This is Irene Bolger, former Secretary of the Nurses Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses dispute in 1986 and the waterfront dispute in 1998, 3CR was always there broadcasting the voices of workers in struggle. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio and we're broadcasting live from the Bay to Chicken Strike here in Melbourne. We've just seen all of the thousands of nurses walk through to their meeting and people from different unions showing their solidarity. 3CR, radio for the workers, by the workers, since 1976. All right, you're listening to Green Left um, Radio, and we are very happy to have our second and final guest for the program. Um, We have Graham Matthews on, um, who has actually been previously been a guest on our program. Um, Graham Matthews is uh, the disability spokesperson for Socialist Alliance, and we were going to ha- we thought would have him on our program today to have a bit, I guess, of a discussion about the federal election and issue and disability kind of issues. Like basically have a bit of a, a discussion on on some of the like what has been some of the recurring issues for disability in terms of this election, and also what have been the, um, some of the positions of some of the major parties contesting this election. So good. Good morning, Graham. Good morning, Jacob. How are you going? I am good. Um, so I guess um, I read I, remember, I read your I guess your kind of great article in Green Left, um, basically I guess kind of responding to one of the kind of earlier kind of comments um, that Scott kind of Mor- um, Morrison kind of made that it was a blessing that he didn't have a child with um, disability, and I guess I want to sort of hear. You know, some of your kind of comment to start off, I guess, this discussion, some of your comments on that. And I guess what that actually kind of that comment, what that actually kind of reflects about some of the positions on disability um, that some of the major parties like the Liberal Party are taking into this election. Sure. Firstly, I think um, I'm certain that many people with disability or indeed uh, people who have a uh, disabled member of their family, particularly a child, would have felt uh, quite um, unimpressed, to say the least, with Scott Morrison's comment, uh, as though um, anybody has a choice of how they're born, uh, or indeed, uh, in most cases, anybody has a a choice whether or not to contract disability uh, in later life, whether it's through accident or indeed through illness and so forth. So, I think people were um, uh, universally uh, quite shocked at the uh, the flippant way that Scott Morrison uh, effectively put down uh, persons with disability. Um, and certainly I think the, uh, the, the the woman who asked Scott Morrison that question of that first debate uh, on the Central Coast was um, exceedingly unimpressed uh, uh, with his response, uh, particularly with the, uh, the, the serious issues that she's been dealing with uh, through NDIS just to get reasonable care for her autistic son. Yeah, and I guess um, what can you? What are some of your comments? I guess on some of the policy that um, the both the coalition and even the Labor Party are kind of bringing in, because there's clearly, I guess, this comment kind of reflected, I guess, a bit of a debate uh, amongst these kind of major parties about where about what where the and where the NGIS 
should be going and I guess what yeah. how the funding should be spent and what reforms should be implemented. And I guess I want to kind of hear some of your comments on some of those debates that are being happening amongst at least the major uh, major parties. Sure. Look, I think the first thing to say is that from Socialist Alliance's point of view, uh, we defend NDIS and we certainly defend the, the funding for NDIS and the, uh, the demand-driven system in the sense that um, uh, support for people with disability is not in some way capped or arbitrarily, um, you know, limited by, uh, uh, by a budget as such, that it's... Um, it should be based on uh, a person's need. Um, so certainly um, Social Science defends that aspect of um, NDIS. What the Liberal government uh, has said is that, uh, and it, it's, it's a fairly sort of um, flippant comment, but that NDIS will always be fully funded, whatever that means. Now, it's a fact that uh, funding for NDIS uh, within the budget has grown, particularly over the last... Uh, few years, um, certainly um, in the years not long after NDIS uh, was brought into being, uh, if we go back to uh, 2019, the, the government used uh, shortfalls or, or rather uh, uh, surpluses in uh, funding NDIS to actually pad out its, um, its budget deficit. And in fact, when the, uh, the, the Liberal government claimed to be... Um, have a balanced budget, uh, I think it was perhaps 2019, uh, the only reason they were able to do that was by uh, hiving off money that was unspent in um, participants' plans within NDIS. And uh, I think to the tune of um, some billion dollars was actually ripped from NDIS to pad out the uh, Liberal government's balance sheet. Now, that being said, um, what does fully funded mean from the point of the Liberal Party? Well, they're not telling us uh, in detail. Uh, they are saying that um, they acknowledge that costs will continue to rise. Uh, they're also, but, but then at the same time, uh, we understand, and I think uh, many people who, um, many participants uh, of, uh, with NDIS plan will recognise that the, the agency that runs NDIS, the National Disability Insurance Agency, uh, has a systematic and quite ruthless campaign to drive down the costs of NDIS by arbitrarily cutting uh, participants' plans. Um, and we saw that from um, the, the, the question that was asked to Scott Morrison uh, up at, uh, in the first debate. Um, the, um, uh, unfortunately, the, the, the name of the, um, the woman who asked the question has slipped my mind. But uh, in subsequent um, interviews with the Sydney Morning Herald, she pointed out that her son's plan was so ruthlessly cut that they had to make a determination as to whether they thought it was more important that he learned how to speak. My understanding is that he's on the, um, the, the autism spectrum uh, or that he was toilet trained. No parent should, be, should have to be forced to make that kind of choice for their child with, with disability. And the same way, no person with disability should be forced to ration the, uh, the, the support worker uh, assistance that they receive to decide whether on a certain day they're able to go to medical appointments uh, or uh, in favour of um, not going to, um, for instance, uh, social appointments on another day. Uh, nobody should be forced to make that decision. And this is the, the situation which uh, NDIS is forcing participants to face at the moment. 
The result of that is a massive increase uh, in the uh, number of people who are seeking reviews of their plans uh, and many of those ending up in the Administrative Appeals Tribunal um, with extremely long waits uh, to get that dealt with, with no guarantee of success, um, where NDIS is spending millions of dollars uh, on lawyers. Now, what we have from Labor, Labor is certainly clearer, and Labor certainly acknowledged the, um, that uh, the scheme was, was founded by them. It's not a perfect scheme. It's not a scheme that, uh, that socialists support uh, in, its, uh, in its wholeness, particularly the, uh, the privatisation agenda and the cost-cutting agenda, which is inherent in the, uh, the, the, the very nature of NDIS. We don't support that. However, we do support the, uh, the choice and control, which the uh, NDIS system has given to many participants, and we, um, we seek to defend that. We also, I think, welcome the fact that uh, the Labor Party has promised to review the, uh, the, the whole system of NDIS, particularly the, um, the review uh, process. But I think, um, you know, nobody who's, uh, who's lived through uh, Labor governments in the past um, should be anything but sceptical as to what the final result of uh, Labor Party policy may be. Yeah, because um, I want to go into, I guess, I want to sort of go into a bit of the last question about, you know, the Socialist Alliance's sort of position and even more broadly some of the other left kind of progressive <coughs> positions that have been put forward on the NDIS, even from, say, the Greens. Um, but yeah. I want to sort of just point out something and um, and see if you kind of comment. I guess in terms of Labor's sort of reforms, um, you know, Labor, it would, would it be sort of accurate to say that, you know, Labor, you know, are probably promising increased funding of NDIS, but when it comes to this whole question of review, um, the review system, does that sort of reflect the fact that actually the um, because one of the biggest criticisms that Socialist Alliance has of um, of NDIS is that it's actually is it has a medicalised sort of model, and in a sense, would it be accurate to say the ALP doesn't want to break away from that sort of medicalised model of the NDIS? I think that's absolutely true. I mean, it was the Labor Party that set up NDIS. It was legislation from the um, uh, from the uh, Gillard government in 2013, which established NDIS. Uh, there are a number of pilot schemes in Newcastle and elsewhere up until 2016. I think first July 2016, when it began to be rolled out more broadly uh, in New South Wales in the first instance. Um, and uh, other states following that. But I just want to pick you up on one thing. I, I don't believe that um, the Labor Party has promised to increase funding for NDIS. What they have said is that they will cut the waste. So they, um, in fact, they want to cut spending uh, on NDIS, um, at least um, on things such as um, uh, NDIS's tendency to use consultants, particularly um, lawyers, uh, and certainly from per- bit of personal experience, uh, NDIS uh, engaged some of the, uh, the most ruthless, um, you know, neoliberal law firms to uh, defend their position at the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, the AAT. Um, so what the Labor Party has said is that they will review uh, some of those decisions and try to cut back. They've also said that they will increase uh, staffing to NDIS. Uh, they haven't... Um, they haven't specified exactly how many staff they will increase that to, but certainly um, the, the current Liberal government has a staffing cap for NDIS, and so, uh, which doesn't mean that um, 
they're not uh they don't have uh people who will will cut plans and so forth but many of these are um uh consultants or indeed um otherwise um uh, non public service employees many of whom are on um exceedingly large um uh contracts so there's uh, there's a great deal of waste there so labor has said that they will um cut the waste from from and try to sort of stop rotting but um uh they haven't necessarily agreed to increase funding but it's true in uh the the AOP does defend the medicalized model of NDIS which is very much and I think particularly for those with a um a, a psychosocial disability um is an invidious position to put somebody in uh with myself my disability is primarily uh physical so it's rather obvious to tell that I don't have feet and I don't have fingers for instance um you don't need to be a doctor to be able to um declare that or be it that um I had to have um uh uh reports from specialists to actually uh declare that before I could be admitted as a participant to the NDIS but there's no argument about it whereas um whether somebody who has a um a psychosocial disability is admitted to NDIS is often the case of um uh rigorous debate and discussion uh forcing them to go through um numerous reviews the AAT engage um uh increasing numbers of um uh, experts at their own cost um and uh, in many cases NDIS will reject that um that application so social science is completely against that and believes that um NDIS should be support from NDIS should be based on uh self uh self self diagnosis in that sense all right well um so, so unfortunately Graham, we're kind of running a bit short on time but I sort of leave you sure. I'll leave you one um to make the final kind of comment in terms of I guess I guess the kind of gen, in as short of span you can uh because we finish our program at 8:30 um yeah, yeah just yeah. what is the kind of you've um what is the kind of social alliance sort of position on what and where NDIS should be and we can make that the concluding sort of comment Sure look I want to uh before I get into that just very quickly I just want to say that um people with disability and their supporters family members are uh, are offered an extremely stark choice at this election uh the return of a liberal government um the 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 writing is on the wall that um should the coalition be returned they will undoubtedly destroy NDIS um there will probably be a system called NDIS but it will be such a hollowed out shell uh, that it will be unrecognizable from that which exists at the moment uh they will drive down uh costs and drive down the numbers um and uh uh make it a, a an exceedingly unlivable system from a social science point of view um we as i said we defend the gains of NDIS uh we would like to see it become far more of a community uh based model rather than a model where uh individual providers can uh overnight almost become millionaires uh, at the public purse we feel that um the provision of uh, NDIS services should be community based um and uh, uh accountable to um to 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 the community we also feel that uh, the whole structure of NDIS should be uh revised and that uh, people with disability themselves should actually run the system um i do point out that uh, recently NDIS has been called to account for the fact that uh it actively discriminates against uh, many of its uh, employees 
who are people with disability. Uh, we need to turn that around completely. We need to turn around this um, um, this insurance-based model, which is run by uh, ruthless insurance clerks, and it needs to be a far more uh, compassionate and holistic system. Uh, it needs to be based very much on a, 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 um, a national health service model of um, free provision of treatment, um, but one which is firmly grounded in the, um, the, the, the community sector. All right. Well, thank you very much, Graham, um, for being on our program. I think it has been a very important kind of discussion, especially coming into the federal election on May 21st. Um, so, yeah, all, um, all, um, thank you again for being on our program, and, yeah, all the best. My pleasure. Thank you very much, Jacob. All right. So we're just speaking to Graham Matthews, who is um, the disability um, spokesperson for Social Science, giving his a bit of an, his analysis of you know what the kind of major parties are kind of offering in terms of disability, um, and also you know and 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 also what is the kind of the Social Alliance sort of position on disability reform. So yeah. Um, we're getting um, we're getting a bit to the end of the program. Um, I'd like to thank all our listeners for tuning in this week. Um, apologies um, for the lack of a co-presenter. Um, just some unfortunate sort of things sort of happened on that. But fortunately, we had a great program overall with some of our guests. And um, yeah, you can um, this will be uploaded as a podcast shortly on freesia.org.au. And yeah, stay tuned for um, a re for Earth Matters, which will be playing after this program. You're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1-800-634-206. Arise, you workers from the farmers. Arise, you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders and at last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions. Serve all masses. Arise. We'll change henceforth the old tradition and spurn the dust to win the prize. That's right. The commies are back. Reds underneath your beds and that crap.